Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're going back to the very beginning, telling the stories of the midwives of the field of developmental genetics, two talented researchers whose work helped to reveal the secrets of life in its very earliest stages, Hilda Mangold and Salome Glucksenvalsch. The field of genetics began to emerge with the rediscovery of Mendel's laws of inheritance around the turn of the 20th century, with the founding of the Genetic Society by William Bateson and Edith Rebecca Saunders following in 1919. But around the same time, another new field of biology was emerging, embryology. From the 1880s, scientists began asking how organisms developed. Life unfolding from a single cell to many, with cells dividing, dying and specialising from one stage to the next. Or, to put it a bit less scientifically, how are babies made? In the early 1900s, embryology was considered a completely separate field from heredity or genetics. But over the next century, scientists would reveal the interplay between the two and the exquisite links between genetics and development. The new field of developmental genetics was born, and its midwives included several remarkable women, two of whom we're going to take a closer look at today, Hilda Mangold and Salome Glucksenvalsch. The tale of developmental genetics is a thrilling one, with everything you need for a good story. There's politics, drama, upheaval, prejudice, and even a suspicious death. So, hold on tight, this is a good one. Our story starts in 1898 in Germany with the birth of a baby girl, Hilda Pruscholt. Hilda's father was a merchant who owned a soap factory and her mother was an activist who defended women's rights. The family was comfortably well off and liberal, so Hilda received a good education, an exception for girls at the time. After graduating from high school, she was sent to a finishing school, although that didn't last long. After half a year, she enrolled at the local university, before quickly moving on again to the larger University of Frankfurt, where she studied zoology. Hilda's friends described her as a gifted, vivacious and charming young woman who was open, frank and cheerful. She had a penetrating and reflective intellect and a lively sense of beauty in nature and the arts, said her friend Victor Hamburger in a 1984 memoir. Hilda soon identified an outlet for her talents and enthusiasm, scientific research, and more specifically, embryology, the study of the earliest stages of life. Her interest in the topic was sparked after she saw a guest lecture by the rising star of this new field, Hans Speymann. Speymann was well known for his work in experimental embryology. This was a new field that involved changing the course of development of embryos, often by dividing the growing organism or transplanting cells from one place to another, then observing the changes as the embryo continued to develop. He was a master of the microsurgical techniques that were needed for delicate experiments on embryos, and he invented several tools for the job, including a tiny lasso made from a strand of his own infant daughter's hair used for separating microscopic embryonic cells. 
At the same time, embryologists were conducting the majority of their experiments on amphibians because the large cells and rapid development proved easiest to work on. Speyman's early research focused on the effects of dividing salamander embryos in different planes – top from bottom, front from back, left from right – at various stages of development. He found that two complete new salamanders formed when he divided an embryo into two during the earliest stages of development. But when he split the embryo later, the results depended on exactly where the division took place. He found that if the dorsal or backside, including a small dimple called the dorsal lip, was separated from the ventral or front side, only the dorsal side developed. But if the dorsal lip was divided between the two halves, both grew. Speyman theorised that the lip contained an organisation centre that influenced what the other cells would become and the growth of the whole embryo. Speyman's lecture obviously inspired Hilda, who immediately asked if she could move to his lab at the Zoological Institute in Freiburg to do a PhD under his supervision an audacious move for a woman at the time. Hilda arrived in Freiburg in 1920 and, by all accounts, she found the atmosphere in Speyman's lab stimulating and exciting. She was perhaps at her best in the endless discussions and debates with kindred minds that extended through the long evenings in open-air taverns at the square, around the cathedral or in our small rooms, said Hamburger in his memoir, remarking... We cared more about food for thought than the nourishment of our bodies. That was probably a good thing, because in interwar Germany, food wasn't the easiest thing to come by, with some students having to survive on turnips through the harsh winter. <coughs> Hilda found the intellectual stimulation she was looking for in Freiburg, but she also found love, falling for Speyman's favourite assistant, Otto Mangold, who she married in 1921. Despite this promising start, things were less good on the scientific side. Hilda was undoubtedly disappointed when Speyman assigned her thesis project, repeating a series of obscure experiments performed decades earlier by the French naturalist Abraham Trembley, who'd been experimenting with tiny organisms called hydra, little more than a tube of cells with tentacles, apparently showing that turning the poor creatures inside out resulted in their outsides transforming into insides, and vice versa. Hilda tried her best, but her hydra failed to perform as Trembley had claimed. Speyman eventually attempted the experiments himself, but he failed too. So Hilda needed a new project. Perhaps feeling guilty at wasting her time and effort, Speyman assigned her an exciting new project, transplanting cells from the dorsal lip of one embryo to another, hoping to prove his theory about the lip acting as an organisation centre, directing the growth of the early stages of life. In 1921, Hilda began a series of very delicate transplantation experiments with pairs of embryos from two differently coloured salamanders, one white and one brown. Using the tools developed by Speyman, she painstakingly extracted cells from one embryo's dorsal lip and transplanted them onto the other embryo, opposite its own lip. Then she waited and hoped. 
The embryos were extremely fragile and the experiments frequently failed. Sometimes the grafts failed to take or the embryos died of infection. But perhaps by beginner's luck, Hilda's first successful attempt came quickly. One day, in May 1921, she found exactly what she had been hoping for when she returned to her microscope. An embryo that looked for all the world like twins conjoined at the gut. Her results showed that the organiser effect was real. Cells from the dorsal lip were directing the development of the cells around them, telling them which part of the embryo to become. So, two organisation centres on opposite sides of an embryo means two attempts at building an embryo, hence the double embryo effect. What's more, Hilda observed that the transplanted cells had recruited tissue from the host embryo to form the second body, controlling them in an effect known as induction. But this one-off success wasn't enough to prove the theory of the organiser. And, unfortunately, studying amphibian development before the invention of modern lab techniques involved waiting around until spring to collect your eggs and then doing all of your experiments as fast as possible before the breeding season ended. It took Hilda 259 attempts over two breeding seasons to obtain just six successful experiments, which formed the body of her PhD dissertation. Speyman must have been happy with her work because he insisted on putting his name on her thesis as the first author, effectively claiming it as his own. Hilda's friend Victor Hamburger noted, Mrs Mangold was not happy that Speyman had added his name to her thesis publication, while Holtfreiter and I and all the rest of us saw ourselves proudly in print as sole authors. Moreover, Speyman had insisted on having his name precede hers. As a result, the special cells of the dorsal lip therefore became known as the Speyman Mangold Organiser, or even more insultingly for Hilda, often simply shortened to the Speyman Organiser. <coughs> there has been speculation that Speyman added his name to Mangold's thesis simply because she was a woman. Others, including Hamburger, suggested that he added his name because of the importance of the results and wanted to stake a claim for his contribution to the work and the development of the techniques behind it. Either way, Speyman's treatment of Hilda does seem unfair, but unfortunately, it wasn't unusual for young women working in the laboratories of older men at the time. After completing her PhD, Hilda and her husband Otto moved to Berlin, where Otto had been appointed the director of the Division of Experimental Embryology at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, thanks to a recommendation from Speyman. Hilda, meanwhile, had been working on her own personal developmental biology project, a baby boy, and was kept busy caring for their newborn son while Otto went off to work in the lab. Tragically, Hilda Mangold never got to resume her scientific career. By the time her work on the embryonic organiser was published in 1924, she was dead. The circumstances around Hilda's death are mysterious. Hamburger wrote in his memoir that she died when a faulty gasoline heater exploded in her kitchen at home in Berlin. However, a letter from Otto assigns her death to a spill when Hilda was refilling an alcohol stove at his mother's house, 
and that, curiously, she refused help from her mother-in-law to douse the flames. Otto finally put out the fire, but it was too late, and Hilda died the next day of her injuries, aged just 25. But was it really an accident? Others who knew her weren't so sure. The truth of the matter is that she killed herself. UCL professor Claudio Stern told Nautilus magazine in 2015 after hearing the story directly from Mangold's friend and contemporary Salome Kluxenvash. Unfortunately, we may never know what really happened to Hilda on that day and what her husband really knew of it. But what is true is that a child lost his mother, a husband lost his wife and the world of developmental biology lost a brilliant and talented researcher. After Hilda's death, Otto Mangold resumed his scientific career. He continued to be Speyman's favourite protégé, taking over from his leadership role at the Institute in Freiburg in 1937. Otto also became actively involved in the Nazi party. He was appointed to the highly political role of rector of the university, helping to implement Nazi policies and writing a book called The Tasks of Biology in the Third Reich. After the war, he was removed from Freiburg University because of his Nazi affiliations, and he spent the rest of his career at a privately financed research institute. As for Speyman, he continued studying his beloved embryonic organiser. He later showed that different parts of the dorsal lip produced different parts of the embryo. Further work demonstrated that the organiser cells were capable of influencing the surrounding cells even after they had been killed, suggesting that an inert signalling molecule released from the organiser must be responsible for this induction effect. Speyman went on to win a Nobel Prize in 1935 for his embryology work, much of which was underpinned by Hilda's PhD project. Although he did mention her briefly in his acceptance speech, many feel she is not given enough credit for her work. So, now you know her story, let's make sure that her name is not forgotten. It's the Speyman Mangold organiser, not just the Speyman organiser, okay? You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Hilda Mangold wasn't the only talented female scientist to make her way through Hans Speyman's laboratory. The next part of our story takes us back there again. Salome Glückson was born in 1907, just a few years after Hilda, in what's now Gdansk in Poland, but was then part of the German Empire. She was educated in Greek, Latin and the humanities, but had virtually no education in science until she arrived at university and decided to intellectually explore. As a woman and a Jew in early 20th century Germany, Salome became accustomed to fighting her way through her education against a wave of prejudice from her classmates and teachers. But strong-willed Salome didn't let any of that nonsense stop her. By her own admission, 
she was never actually planning to be a scientist. She wanted to be a teacher and thought that biology might offer a practical route into the profession. So she worked her way through university by earning a living as a private tutor for a wealthy family in Berlin. She must have made quite an impression on her young charge, as the family asked if she would consider moving with them to a smaller town, even asking for her input as to where they might go. Aware of the exciting work in developmental biology at Hans Spemann's laboratory, Salome suggested Freiburg. The charms of this attractive university town in southwest Germany clearly appealed to her employers, and they moved there in 1928. Salome described the atmosphere at Speyman's lab as stimulating to the utmost, but negative in essence. She was later outspoken about Speyman, accusing him of being an anti-Semite and anti-feminist, and holding up examples of his behaviour towards her fellow female students, including Hilda Mangold. He was a strong German nationalist, full of mistrust towards other nationalities and sharing the prejudices of his fellow nationals, she said. I already mentioned his prejudice against women expressed also in his dealings with Hilda, the discoverer of the organiser, who is reported not to have appreciated it when Speyman added his name to the publication of her thesis, while other male students were permitted to publish their work alone. She also pointed out that the work behind Speyman's discovery that even dead organiser cells can conduct the tissues around them, the phenomenon known as embryonic induction, was done by a female graduate student, Elsa Wehmeyer. I was around at the time. Her name did not even appear on the first publication reporting this exciting result, Glückson said. Salome felt that Speyman's disapproval of women and Jews led him to assign her a tedious and menial thesis project, observing and describing the development of limbs in newts. She suspected that the work was intended to form the background information for a far more exciting project for a presumably male student at a later date. But her critique of Speyman went beyond his prejudices. She and several other students criticised him for keeping his research focus too narrow and ignoring the role of the emerging field of genetics in embryonic development. Luckily, Salome was assigned the more forward-thinking Victor Hamburger, Hilda Mangold's friend, as her advisor. Hamburger arranged joint seminars with other departments and made sure that the students, including Salome, received at least some education in this exciting new area of science. Salome may have resented her project, but she worked with skill and discipline, completing her PhD in 1932, just as Hitler rose to power. She looked for a postdoctoral position, but was repeatedly turned away, with one potential employer telling her flatly, you, a woman and a Jew, forget it. In 1933, new laws in Germany prevented Jews from working as civil servants, which included posts as university teachers and professors. Salome and her new husband, Rudolf Schoenheimer, fled to New York, where Rudy got a position at Columbia University. Six months later, Salome met Columbia mouse geneticist Leslie Clarence Dunn at a dinner party. He was intrigued by her scientific background and invited her to work in his laboratory. 
Although Dunn had no money to pay her a salary, Salome agreed and spent three years working for him for free before being appointed as a research assistant. At this time, the field of developmental genetics was just beginning to take shape. And unlike Speyman, Dunn considered genetics to be of the utmost importance to development. In Dunn's laboratory, Salome studied the development of mice. Unlike amphibian embryos, scientists at the time were unable to use transplantation, isolation or cell staining techniques to study mammalian embryos. So Salome used naturally occurring genetic mutations as natural versions of the embryonic manipulations conducted by Speyman, Mangold and their contemporaries. Salome studied how genetic mutations in a region of the genome called the T-complex affected embryonic development, resulting in mice with spine and tail malformations. Descriptive studies of the development of mutant phenotypes required exquisite attention to detail. Luckily, she'd been well-trained in detailed observation, thanks to her work in Speyman's laboratory. Salome conducted a series of breeding experiments, discovering and describing phenotypes and inheritance patterns, looking at the interaction between different versions or alleles of the T-complex and describing their influence on development. Her first paper from her time in Dunn's lab is regarded as one of the pivotal publications in sparking the new field of developmental genetics. And some credit Dunn and Glucksenwalsch with effectively founding the entire field. Despite this success, Salome spent the next 17 years in Dunn's laboratory, poorly paid and under-recognised. She dreamed of having her own lab, but Dunn just wasn't interested in advancing her career, and there were no regular faculty posts for women at the university. By the 1950s, Salome's first husband had died. She'd remarried a man named Heine Walsh, and the pair had two children. With her family life now firmly settled in New York, she felt tied to the city, but there were even fewer opportunities for her to work outside Columbia than there were chances for progression inside. So she was just stuck there, with little chance of advancing her career. Her break finally came in 1955, when Heine encouraged her to look for opportunities at the new Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which had just been established by the private Jewish Yeshiva University in New York. Fortunately, the head of the anatomy department, Ernst Schara, was committed to promoting women in science, and he was quick to realise what Salome could offer. Starting as an associate professor, she advanced to professor shortly afterwards and in 1963 helped establish the college's new department of genetics. Salome achieved her dream of running her own lab, but she never employed more than a few people, trusted few of her employees and reportedly ran the group with an iron hand. Unlike Hilda Mangold, Salome lived a long and productive life, co-authoring over 100 publications on developmental genetics and collecting many awards for her scientific work, including receiving the National Medal of Science in 1993, becoming an overseas member of the Royal Society in 1995 and receiving the Thomas Hunt Morgan Medal in 1999. Reportedly, Dwight Eisenhower, 
who was president of the university before he became president of the US, asked Salome to speak to him about her research. And she gave him what she described as an elementary introduction to the field. But he was so impressed that he thought she deserved to live somewhere better than her tiny New York apartment and gifted her a magnificent Columbia-owned residence, a potent example of the power of effective science communication. Glücksenwalsch officially retired in 1978, but she continued actively researching and participating in scientific conferences into the 1990s, finally passing away in 2007 at the age of 100. After she died, the eminent mouse geneticist Professor Lee Silver wrote in a tribute in Nature Genetics. She was a remarkable woman who persevered against Nazi anti-Semitism and Ivy League sexism to establish the new scientific field of developmental genetics. Her career was driven by an early insight into the fundamental connection between genes and development, a connection that eluded the leading geneticists and embryologists of her time, who seemed not to have ventured intellectually beyond their narrow spheres of research. Life is amazing and mysterious, unfolding from a string of genetic code in a single cell to make all the tissues of the body. But we can say thank you to Hilda Mangold and Salome Glucksenbalsch for helping us to understand a little bit more about how it all works. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at how genomics is shaping the future of cancer. And before that, there's another bonus episode of Genetics Shambles to fill your ears. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, with additional research and scripting by Emily Nordvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.